0: Is
1: that, is- For the FBI listening in on this, is there a point when it becomes a matter of, act, of active resistance, of you know, violent resistance, or at least forceful resistance against some of these trends?
2: This is Wayward, episode 9. Tonight we have Tara Ann Thieke. You may know her as an interesting Twitter personality, and if you're in the Pittsburgh area, you might know her from the Catholic Worker or the Solidarity Party or the Benedict Option Reading Group. Tara, thanks for being on. And this is Zeb. This is Kent. And this is Mark. So welcome to Wayward, Tara. Thanks for coming on. Thank you so much. We wanted to start out just by finding out more about you and sort of where you are in your life and and what brought you there. So can you tell us kind of how to how you'd answer that question? Where are you in in your life and how did you get there?
3: (laughs) Well, um, I am 33 years old and I live in Pittsburgh with my husband and daughter. And Pittsburgh is not a place I ever thought I was going to. (laughs) enter. I was raised in Montgomery County, Maryland. Which, I don't know if you guys are familiar with it, but it is an extraordinarily wealthy, liberal corner of uh, the already wealthy, liberal, mid-Atlantic region. Um, when people say bubble, I think they mean Montgomery County. <laughs> so I was, I was raised right in the thick of that. Um, I recently converted to Roman Catholicism after being raised as a Unitarian. And I am now trying to practice, I think, what they call the Benedict Option in my personal life by working with the homeless and pittsburgh catholic worker i run a book club um i run two two book clubs actually one for the pittsburgh inklings focusing on um jr tolkien and cs lewis and owen barfield um and i'm with the american solidarity party as well i'm trying to do more stuff for them actually so i sort of started off um, in this world of Montgomery County, the sort of Unitarian Church, liberal, socialist, progressive politics, culture. Um, We had a pretty sincere and absolute disdain for anything traditional or conservative. Um, You know, what set my family apart, kind of even within this world, is that the Unitarian Church is a pretty rational atheistic organization, but my mom was a Wiccan. My father often called himself a Buddhist, but he was really sort of a seeker. The only thing uh, we weren't supposed to seek was Christianity. <laughs> um, the frequent <laughs> frequent semi-joke at our house was, you know, you can grow up to become a lesbian or a communist, marry an anarchist. Do anything you want, just don't marry a Republican or a Catholic. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so how are you doing on that front?
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not a Republican, <laughs> but um, the, the news that I was converting to Catholicism was not met with cheers. <laughs> so I sort of headed off to college with this very, you know, um, with this background as this sort of earnest seeker committed to two ideas, socialist politics and a belief in this sort of pantheist deity and I imagined a future that looked a lot like Star Trek The Next Generation but with a god. Even though I come from Montgomery County I was very anti-institutional. My parents' concern for spiritual issues kinda made us outliers and they were very disdainful of what they called yuppie culture. So I was always sort of on the lookout for this toxic materialism underlying our institutions. When I was going to school in New Jersey I was helping out a lot with my grandparents who were, my grandmother was very sick with Alzheimer's and they were also Catholic. So I was going to daily mass with my grandfather a lot. And sort of looking at his life with her was really making me take a step back from, you know, the guidance counselor message of, you're going to be a lawyer, a doctor, an engineer, you're going to change the world. You're going to be, you know, you're from Montgomery County, you're special. You're the technocrat who's going to plan the future. And I was looking at this quiet life and just really moved by it and not knowing what, what kind of implications that had for me. And um, then one evening I was driving back from Princeton, which is where my boyfriend at the time was, and I was contemplating our future, that we were both going to be these professors promoting socialism, writing books. I was going to spend my evenings discussing ancient Greece and Kant, and I thought, I'm, I'm so lucky I'm never going to be this terrible soulless hedge fund manager because I'm going to have meaning in my life. And I'm never going to be a farmer or a janitor, wasting my life away in drudgery. And right at that, that moment, this immense shame swept over me. You know, someone has to take care of the dying. Someone has to take care of babies. Someone has to take out the trash. <laughs> and, you know, Wendell Berry has this beautiful line, which I came across years later, which was that it's more virtuous to haul garbage away than to manufacture it. And at that, at that moment, you know, years ago, I felt the truth of that. Who was I, this, you know, well-off college kid who had witnessed all these small, holy acts of love, dismissing these quiet lives in favor of this utopian vision of the future that I was going to help create? And these images of this Star Trek world that I've had in the future, curing suffering, just began to seem so empty. And I struggled with that for a long time. It didn't end when I got out of the car. Um, I started really digging into my assumptions of what a good society looked like. I started trying to read about 100 books a year. I'm trying to live what I called an uncredentialed life, which meant... If I wanted to write books, I didn't want to go to a grad school program and pay thousands of dollars to get a degree. I wanted to have something to write about. So I took off to Texas. Um, I worked as a caterer. I worked in a food booth at the Houston Rodeo. I waited tables. In DC and Baltimore, I worked as a social services assistant at a foster care agency where about 90% of my time was working with foster kids in the field often in extremely uh, tense crisis situations. I taught preschool at a Montessori school in Bethesda, Maryland, and I worked as a nanny to several wealthy families. And all of this gave me a lot of time to read and reflect on the disconnect that I saw between the values we say we have and the way we actually live. My friends all worked in one world and I was in this other world. They were you know, reporters, they were grad students, PhD students, they were office managers, they were getting their MBAs. And I was sitting here talking with housemates about why we didn't get paid days off. <laughs> um, and why our, our bosses who, you know, call themselves communists, were so disdainful of our work. <laughs> um, and it was really this big wake up call for me. And I started thinking that, a lot of the utopian solutions that I had imagined were a little empty. (laughs) Um, I went through some more readings. I got really into studying modern-day slavery, um, indigenous writings, anti-colonial works. A lot of Derek Jensen, um, who if you're not familiar with, is a very radical environmentalist anarchist. And and I was (laughs) a little angry. Um, I felt like the people I lived with my friends, my family, my newspapers talked about climate change, but Road and planes. everything we did required these enormous supply chains snaking around the world. That we wanted too much. We wanted incompatible goal- goods. We wanted to predict and control the future. We didn't care what we messed with in order to achieve that. We turned a blind eye to the aluminum mines in South America, the sludge lakes in China, the tantalum mines and Congolese wars that give us our video games. And I started feeling like we were hypocrites, that this was all a pernicious lie, that free college wasn't going to change the fact that we wanted all these gadgets. We wanted all these things that were kind of destroying the world and destroying our own happiness. Um, This was right during Occupy Wall Street, and a a boyfriend at the time told me I really needed to step back and have some more pity, um, that people were doing the best they could with what they had. And it struck me as true. Um, I kind of turned back to JRR R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, mm-hmm. and I found that their vision seemed whole in a way that no one else has had, except maybe my grandfather's, that we should be humble, we should measure ourselves by Christ, we should be skeptical of our appetites, especially our desire to control, and we should remember that we live in the long defeat. So about two years later, my grandfather passed away. I was dating my soon to be husband, who is an agnostic. Um, I've only ever dated conflicted Catholics, and I thought, well, somebody had better <laughs> submit themselves to the Pope in this relief. <laughs> <laughs> so it marked a real turning point, and this Easter I was baptized, confirmed, and received into the church. Um, over the past few years, you know, he's from Pittsburgh, and I wanted to live a rooted life. I was very into Wendell Berry. And I wanted to come and build a community. His family's here. Um, he's a labor lawyer. So we settled on Pittsburgh instead of LA. And, you know, slowly but surely, we're trying to do the things that make for small solutions, face to face service, instead of these big, enormous ones. Um, I hold a lot of what Ivan Illich, the essay I, I shared with you guys about close to my heart about this modesty and really looking at the total sum of our existence with humility and wanting to step back from these this decision to make everything bigger better faster stronger louder Um, And i think a big part of that is accepting suffering and accepting risk and accepting grief and pain And choosing grace over control, which is so hard to do. And the only thing I've found that really helps doing that is Christ and the teachings of the Catholic Church. So I don't have big solutions anymore. Um, I'm dealing, I have criticisms that are pretty big, but my criticisms have to start with me, myself, first. Um, And I'm just trying to learn slowly to pay attention more and more to my intentions and to really question them. So that's that's me. That's that's my story.
2: <laughs> I hope I didn't go on too long. So can you say more about you said that where and how you were raised you sort of came in with a socialist liberal point of view. How political were you really or, or how much of was it maybe just kind of like the the preset? Were you involved in political activism, or very sort of my, strongly motivated?
3: My, I remember first knocking door to door with my parents for Dukakis when I was five. <laughs> um, I was—I gave speeches in high school about how amazing socialism was. I wrote for the school paper about democratic politics. I protested, you know, George Bush's first inauguration when I was still in high school. Um, I really, <laughs> I really gave my life over to this political vision, and I was very proud to see myself as a radical leftist. And most of the people I I knew saw themselves as Democrats, but not nearly as radical as I, as I considered myself. And it's been very interesting over the past, you know, 15 years since graduation, watching them move to the sort of place I once was. I, I often feel guilty that I was so busy preaching to everybody that I've dragged them all to the left, and now I'm like, I'm not quite sure I'm there anymore, guy.
2: <laughs> so it sounds like you you said that you started to see some maybe hypocrisy in the, polit- the political views of the world that you were in, but I don't know if, if your politics changed or if you just changed in realizing what politics meant for personal life. Could you... Explain that a little bit.
3: That's a pretty big question. I think that I'd have to say both of those would be accurate to some degree. In some ways, my politics haven't changed. You know, I I still think, well, I disagree with many of my former positions. I think my fundamental concerns for the poor and the vulnerable are the same. But I do think my belief in tactics and technique have changed. And that's largely from working with people and sort of paying attention to how we outsource labor. I became very interested in questions of what we do ourselves and what we won't do for ourselves. And I got very interested in the the idea of functionalism, which is that we're always going to need somebody to take out the trash. And if it's not taking out the trash, it's going to be changing you know, your grandparents' diaper when they're incontinent, that there's going to be the shadow work of caring for human beings. And that work is so devalued. We want to institutionalize Mm -hmm. it. We want to get rid of it. We want to say it doesn't exist. But really, what's more political, what's more fundamental than how we care for other people? And just focusing that discussion on the institutions gives us a free pass for what we're doing in our personal lives. And that's clearly not something people want to hear about. You know, I'm someone who for many years called myself a feminist very vocally. And when you start looking at what Western feminism often entails, you can say, Hey, listen, your intentions are great. I understand. I understand where you're coming from, but there's a lot of stuff you're leaving out. And maybe your critique would be better if, if, Instead of wanting to jump into the consumerist capitalist workplace, we tried to pull men out of that and rebuild a different society where we don't try to have it all and end up sacrificing so much. And people don't people don't want to hear that, you know, we've imbibed so much already that it's easier to just sort of say, no, no, that's crazy. This is I'm going to go along with what everybody else is doing.
1: So I know you say that you don't, you don't have solutions. But do you have like a vision you could offer us of what sort of your just society would look like? Well, not not how to get there, but just how it would look in the end in your mind.
3: Oh, that's, it's so tempting to sort of come up with this incredibly trite, easily made fun of on Twitter version of Chire. <laughs> and so everybody laughs at that and they should, you know, that the claim is that all these traditionalists are secretly just yearning for this medieval perfection that never existed. And that's true. I don't think it ever did. It ever did really exist. Um, the same way I, very romantic about Native American history, but it clearly wasn't idyllic. I don't know if you guys are familiar with Hosito on Twitter, but sure. you know he's written pretty compellingly. I think that there is basis for a one world government, you know, kind of under the supervision of the Catholic Church, <laughs> which is not what the world is ready for. Um, So I don't know. I don't know how you balance that. These questions are people throw out solutions very, very quickly. And I think what the best thing we could do is have a lot of voices offering different opinions, empowering local communities to make decisions for themselves, even if we don't like them. And then hoping that slowly that kind of organically sorts it out, sort of like a Jane Jacobs neighborhood does, Instead of hoping that we can just impose this top down solution and that's going to create a just society, I think taking free will is unfortunately at the heart of it. And when that, when we start pulling that away to impose our vision on things, we take away the most precious thing that we have. That sometimes makes me a radical anarchist, kind of along the lines of Jacques Saloul. And sometimes it makes it sound like I'm okay with really horrible things, which I'm not. But I feel like a century of liberal interventionism and imperialism have completely not worked, have brought so much more destruction than they have brought good things. And we need to be a lot more skeptical of our impulses to bring democracy to the world or to bring food to the world, because often these things end up being trojan horses for you know interests behind the scenes
1: i mean i I think this is a pretty democracy skeptic podcast to begin with but i mean it's interesting we talk about letting the local communities make their own decisions because over the past couple years i started to have a shift in the maybe even in the opposite direction so i was living i actually i just moved to baltimore um, I've been living in sort of semi-rural Ohio for several years before that. Very much the sort of, at least as close to the sort of shire thing as you can imagine in <laughs> modern day America. But also the tyranny that is possible in those communities, how easy it is for either you know, a handful of people to control things or, you know, anyone who wants to speak up about the problems in the communities. It's very easy for them to get shouted down and shunned and all of that. And... While I still share your sort of skepticisms with the top down approach, um, and certainly, you know, the promises of democracy under the, when it's really a matter of increasing our own capital gains, it's, that's one thing. I feel like it is very much a different matter to make demands for, you know, the the dignity of individual humans and that, no, you don't get to sort this out. You know, there, there are certain things that should not be up to the decisions that should not be up to the individual communities. And I've seen the effects and the alienation of some of those things that makes me at least skeptical of the practicalities of those of those communities being able to solve those issues.
3: Well, I think you're completely right about that. I mean, local governments and local communities can be as corrupt as it gets, you know, and it's worse because they're neighbors. You see them <laughs> you know that they're right. they're willing to totally look the other way. Partly the reason, you know, I became Catholic was because to me, they provide, not the reason, but um, one of many, many reasons was seeing in how many situations they've served as a voice of conscience, Mm. as a witness in a situation. Um, I don't know how familiar you guys are with the situation in the Congo, but it's pretty dreadful. Um, Everything we're using right now uh, comes from the Congo, just to talk to each other on um, the tantalum mines that make congo make colton are controlled by rape and warfare it's not something we like talking about we like portraying it as a tribal conflict but the tribes tribal conflict serves as a distraction and enables companies to keep the the price of colton extremely low we're all familiar, at least I hope we are, with um, you know what King Leopold did in the Congo in the early 20th century, killing millions of Congolese in order to extract r- rubber, and the same thing's going on now. Millions of people have died so that we can have our gadgets, and obviously, you know, local communities in the Congo are not going to solve this. Mm-hmm. But the Catholic Church has been performing a very interesting role in the Congo right now. Um, serving as a witness, organizing groups, raising awareness of the Colton crisis, trying to stabilize the government, serving as mediators. And I think that's sort of what I'm talking about. With the, we're human beings, our local communities are going to be subjected to all the things that are wrong with us, all of our sins. And so we do need this external voice that's not the state. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not a business, but a moral voice calling us back to to grace, calling us away from mammon, um, calling us away from wanting to control or to, to kill, to, to get revenge. And I think the church is performing that function there. So ideally, what I'd like to see is, you know, I know people talk about the Benedict option as a way of escaping. Um, and that Rod Dreher, I think, kind of specifically says over and over again that it's not about healing the community. It's about saving the Christian community, saving the faith. But I can't help but think that part of what the Benedict Option should be is being able to come back to the community to help the community. I hope that a strong parish and a parish that gets stronger and practices things that build their faith is then able to go back into the community and mediate arguments um, serve the homeless refocus attention on on problems like that I think they're better they're better suited to do that unfortunately or unfortunately than um, than the state is or a bureaucracy. <laughs>
2: One of the more interesting criticisms I've seen, to me at least, about the localist movement and the Benedict Option and communities like that has been a feminist criticism that often women and children are the ones who maybe are trapped and more prone to abuse in that kind of an environment than in a liberal mainstream society where they have procedural outlets. There's a number you can call that will bring in the state police, you know, if there's a child abuse hotline or domestic abuse, you know, you can appeal to that bureaucratic institution and it follows rules. It's not not just about personal relationships and personal trust. And as much as I am on the same page with you about almost all of these issues, I do see some validity in that criticism. And I wonder as a woman and as a mother, if you think that's a weakness of the localist communalist way of life.
3: I think those are wonderful questions. I don't know how, when I hear that kind of thing, what I'm sort of seeing in my head is sort of like this scary militia out in Idaho or um, a cult, you know, where they've completely severed their ties from the larger community and have done, they've actually headed for the hills and people really are physically cut off. What I see as localism is more looking at your town, the community that you're in that has a bureaucracy, that has a police force, and doing what you can to supplement those things in a positive way, to provide those mediating institutions. You know, we're losing elk lodges, moose lodges, um, all these communal mediating institutions that worked between the individual and and the state those things softened and buffered life and in a totally we're going to go out and do it ourselves that's real that's terrifying because you don't have those those state institutions to rely on and you don't have those buffering institutions so when i think about localism it's not let's go camp out and start anew it's let's you can't just pull out of the economy but let's do what we can to support our local farm let's do what we can to support our local parish let's start a book club let's start up let's go feed the homeless let's, let's go meet our neighbors let's do those things to bring people together face to face and so in, in that context I feel like that helps women and children get out get out of the house it helps them keeps them from being isolated um, clearly what, what you're referring to I would in in that situation yes they need we need the police people should not be. No man is an island and no community is an island. You know, we shouldn't be off in the woods trying to do things entirely on our own. It's just going to breed sickness. You need fresh air and flowing flowing people. You know, people are always going to be coming in and out of each other's towns and lives. The difference is we don't, we don't want that, but we don't want this increasing atomization where people are leaving their extended families and now leaving their their clubs and their groups, these sources that give meaning to their lives, and instead looking for those things on the computer.
1: When you mentioned the computer thing, because that is something that I was going to wait until later to ask you, but if you do mind, I'll just ask you now. What are your feelings about internet communities? Um, obviously, we've all met each other, and we're doing this because of one of the dumbest communities. On the internet, weird Catholic <laughs> Twitter. How do you feel... To- as far as in a sort of authentic sense of community and meeting some of these needs, how do you feel that the internet, which is, of course, only made possible by the gadgets, which is built on the, you know, the bodies of countless millions, but do you feel that internet communities <laughs> kind of match some of these, these same, these same needs for people?
3: It's one of those things where I think God can bring good out of anything, including the bad. I think the internet clearly can be a force for good. You know, I'm always going to be very skeptical about how it's made right now. Um, I think we're far too careless with our gadgets, and it's something that I wrestle with myself on. At least I want to know about what it takes for me to use the Internet. I think they can, when you have so much collapsing all around you, you know, you have to grab hold of what you can. And if the Internet is a means of doing that, great. I started my book clubs on the internet. Um, I found writers I would never have found on the internet. And that's partially because the institutions and neighborhoods and the rootedness around me had withered away. So I have to find what I can, but it can't stop there. It has to go beyond that. And I think things like this, like a podcast where you're getting people to, you know, talk and have actual conversations that aren't in 140 characters Is a vital step. Um, So, as long as these internet communities are bringing people back to reality and saying, Hey, listen, you know, we're all kind of fractured and being drowned out, but let's, I see you here and you see me. So, let's use this to get out of there, (laughs) get -hmm. out of here, you know? But if it stops with, I'm lonely and you're lonely, and now let's be lonely on this screen that's really dangerous i think as great as these podcasts and these things can be i don't know if you're familiar with hikikomori it's a japanese Mm -hmm. term but you know shut-ins are an increasing phenomenon which is very disturbing and so you know it's it's just the Internet's one of those things. It's gonna, It can go one way or the other way. It's what we do with it. And the pressure of the Internet may make us, at least makes me, want to just sit on my phone sometimes. And it has to really be resisted to come back to reality.
2: Mm. Huh. Well, I think you're right, Tara, that it has to go offline. It has to get, get in real life at some point. And social media and all these things has a... A capacity to connect people who would never have found each other and I think you know all of us might have been able to go through life being the only weird left-leaning traditionalist <laughs> radical Catholic or Orthodox person we know uh, but now we found each other and I would never of course I, I don't think I would have ever run across you and, and your Benedict Option meet up in Pittsburgh without Twitter I wouldn't have started this podcast I wouldn't have my one of my current employees Um, So, it's brought a lot of positive things into my real life that I wouldn't have found. I would have just been isolated out here in rural western Pennsylvania um, with my neighbors who I have little in common with other than that we live by each other, and you know we do neighborly things for each other, but there's a level that you can't get to unless you have a lot of shared assumptions and, and sort of background. So it offers that capacity or that capability. But it also offers the seduction of being just trapped online and not ever leaving it as being an alternative to real life. And I agree with you. I think that's the temptation and the danger of it. That's probably more common, way more common experience.
4: Yeah, Tara, we probably come from uh, similar backgrounds. I was raised Unitarian in Howard County, Maryland, so uh, <laughs> ended up <laughs> ended up an Eastern Orthodox Christian. So I think we had a similar trajectory, <laughs> and I more or less read myself into it.
3: Um, right? Isn't that isn't that wild? Just you know, people ask you, "How did it happen?" You think, "Well, you saw me." But my mom was like, "Where did this come from?" And I was like, "You saw me reading for years." <laughs> you never asked me what I was reading.
4: <laughs> and, and I think that's I mean, I, I don't know what your experience is like. It's something I'm curious about is I, I think that you know the, the questions like the one that Zeb had about um, how vulnerable vulnerable persons tend to be treated in um, kind of inward looking religious communities. I mean those those questions are raised by people who have had those experiences and were raised in those communities. and I think that kind of people like us who tend to be pretty enthusiastic about the prospect of living, in a fairly traditional, inward-looking religious community, come from a different background, right? And and I think that I mean stability is one of those principles that we've been talking about a lot as integral to projects like this. And I wonder if you have any experiences of, of folks in your own community who were raised in that sort of community and have stayed in it and have maintained an enthusiasm about it.
3: You know, a lot of the people I know are converts. It's it's interesting. Seb, you weren't at our last Benedict Option meeting, but um, we've been having members of the Bruderhof attend, and they're sort of what we're talking about in terms of a a religious community that does function more on its own. And one of the guys last time was a teenager, and he was talking about the struggles he's been having trying to stay in the community. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me like listening to him talk, I kind of, I didn't get to share this before, I love what the Bruderhof are doing, but it's not for me. That sort of really isolated religious community life, I would chafe under, I, you know, maybe it's being raised a Unitarian in Montgomery County, but um, that sort of limitation just strikes me as terrifying. So I do think the key is being in society as, as it is. Um, you know, you can build your monasteries, but you, you build them in the world and you have people coming from, you have your neighbors coming, hopefully you have farms springing up around. It shouldn't just be a, a bunch of monks living alone in isolation. That's good in some places, but certainly not for families or for vulnerable, as
1: you said, vulnerable people. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious, because um, the stability question is one that's I find very interesting because both me and my more or less my extended family, we're a very small family and we are all just compulsively nomadic. (laughs) And so I'm, you know, I'm very interested in the, many of the things that are talked about, these sort of like Benedict Option things and all that. But if you want, you know, sort of my picture of my ideal life in that ideal Shire society, it's the kind of traveling bard Gandalf one you know roaming in and out for festivals sort of things i like being mobile you know for a while i fe- felt very guilty about it but it was actually when we had the episode with chris Arnati when he was just like yeah I-, I like being a part of the mobile global i like being that i get to drive around and see a bunch of new places and i mean that that's me too it's all
3: it's also wendell berry i mean wendell berry right. had to leave to go home i think and in and- you don't have the Lord of the Rings without them leaving,
1: <laughs> right? But so, how what what do you sort of see the place of uh, itinerants and sort of transient people in uh, in sort of your, in these communities? How do you know, people sort of come into these communities? How do people leave these communities? What's the role people at that play?
3: I think having people having sort of fluid borders is vital for the health of a community and i think having different roles including roles which are not going to be permanently rooted eat within given boundaries is also vital to the the mm. imaginative health the spiritual health not everybody's called to be a parent not everybody's called to be a farmer not everybody's called to be a priest we need storytellers we need travelers we need people who are bringing things in we need merchants we need We need those things. They just need to be tempered by responsibility. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that's clearly what you're going for, too. We've just gone so far in one extreme that, you know, we think even the slightest bit of responsibility is like, it's so hard to consider, I think, for some people. But really, we could pull back a good deal and even a little bit, and it would make a huge difference. Mm -hmm. I I don't don't think you can have a healthy Benedict option in a closed community. That's just, I don't think that's how human human beings don't function that way. You know, we we breathe, we we take in and we we give out. You know, that's how we're supposed to be. Mm -hmm.
1: So don't build a wall. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it was more of the question of can I come in over the wall? Yeah, well yes. I'm not the one building the wall. It be a very tiny wall around one person. I think
3: it would be a very a very dull world if uh if everybody looked the same, spoke the same language. You know, that's we want to encourage roots, but you know, Gandalf is rooted in his service to the to the valor and you know, it's just a different kind of rootedness. He's not rooted in his own appetites. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's kind of the only roots we have these days.
2: Well, well, why don't we move on now to the Ivan Illich speech that you uh, shared with us. I would love yeah. to. So this was, a, I guess, a speech given by Ivan Illich called To Honor Jacques Ellul. Yes. Do you know the background here?
3: Ivan so Illich is a really interesting thinker and a, a sort of an Austrian philosopher who did most of his work um, in Central America. He was a, a priest for a long time. He ended up leaving the priesthood. And... He was asked to give a talk on Professor Alul, who is a French Christian anarchist who wrote a book called The Technological Society, which is sort of, it's a masterpiece. It's one of the best books I've ever written. Um, every, anybody I know who's read it just says you know, he changed everything. He really gave us a way to think about technology and security and grace and risk and once, once Ivan Illich was given him, he really helped Ivan Illich make very serious critiques about the healthcare system, school, public schooling, about Peace Corps. He took Jacques Ellul's work and sort of ran with it to talk about how the entire society around us has been altered by our obsession with technique. And so this, this speech really touched on the key things in both of their thoughts. And so I thought, well, this is really kind of what I believe, so...
2: Yeah, could you give the listeners who don't get a chance to read this a little summary, kind of, of what the theme is?
3: Yeah, let me let me try to. Ilul wrote that technique sort of has a mind of its own, and that at this point it's run roughshod over our abilities to control it. It's it's fueled by our it was fueled by our appetites, and now it serves its own logic. And Ivan Illich is kind of clear that he does hold Christianity as being responsible in some degree for creating this runaway technique. Sort of saying that when the best is corrupted, it produces the worst. And so in Christianity and its vision of suffering and its philosophy, the the beautiful philosophers it's produced are corrupted. It turns into this desire to, to, to have progress in a way that sort of no other society had come up with an idea of progress before. And this raises a whole number of of ethical questions for us. And what's happened, and Zeb, you might remember this from um, our friend Justin's talk, is that we've sort of started devaluing our senses to give way to the image. We've basically started pursuing something called I call bigger, better, faster, stronger, louder. And these things have made a sort of walking nightmare around us. Um, We're just completely subdued to our appetites and technique and technique will perfect your appetites more and more. It'll tell you what you want and it'll go after it. And it might not be what you really want. You're going to say, you know what? It'd be great if I could get to work in 20 minutes instead of an hour. And so it's going to give you a car. But what that car does is it devalues your feet. And it ends up creating traffic and it ends up creating ugliness and noise and costing so much money. And all of these externalities are not in that initial promise of getting you, getting you some progress, getting you to work faster. And we see the same sort of thing with artificial conception, which he touches on just for a second in here. But the same thing of, I have a problem, I don't want to get pregnant. And so here's this technique that will help you control your body. But once you control your body in this way, once you sort of decide to alter a naturally functioning thing, there are drastic consequences that you can't even foresee. And those things have a life of their own and they start looping and you start, you come to abortion, you come to all sorts of things. Eventually you come to genetic modification because you've subdued human life. You have imposed a technique upon it to alter it, to fit your wishes, and Illich says that's what we've done with the world. We've done it with creation. We've done it with the human body. We're doing it with the human person. And I think that's, you know, if you've ever read Brave New World and been a little afraid, I think that's sort of the real threat among us. It's, it's transhumanism, if you're familiar
2: with the concept. Mm-hmm. And what does this word technique mean? Is it just the same thing as technology or is it? more subtle it's than not.
3: that he you know it's i wish i could read the original french but what he comes across is it's it's almost it's a little bit like neil deGrasse tyson's reason it's a process it's not the scientific method but it's this sort of scientism this rationality that isn't touchable it's not touchable by rationality you can't reason with it it's this process that once it starts it's going to go on and build upon itself it's a way of approaching reality in order to minimize risk maximize control to manage predict and that turns into technologies but technology is only technology is the sort of physical form it takes the machine but it doesn't have to be a machine and the thinking can stay with us even when we're we're standing in a field. You know, Mm -hmm. it's still this desire to plan and control what we see.
1: So, you know, obviously I assume, Alul and Illich, and you, you know, none of us really want to be like full-on anti-medicine for for an easy example. So I guess what, what I'm getting at is, so how do we define the lines between good technology improvements over you know some of the corruptions of nature like it's yes it's maybe an artificial life like we now have medicines that can keep people alive and in you know much less pain and keep them you know much more able to do things that we consider to be you know the good life of humans that a hundred years ago two hundred years ago were just impossible. And how do we separate those out from the need to plan and control and dominate?
3: I'm not sure how much you can separate them. But on, on this specific topic, he has a wonderful book called Limits to Medicine. And he he's not anti-medicine. He's very much pro-self-care, pro, pro-medicine. But I think he would start looking at something like our pharmaceutical companies mm-hmm. and asking how much health are they producing? Um, he, I'm not sure if he coined it, but there's a term he uses called iatrogenesis. And we sort of see it in things like SSRIs where they're, they, they certainly serve a purpose. They certainly are effective. I would never tell anybody to go off of them. Um, but we can impose or, or project these desires onto them that they're going to cure suffering. They're going to make us feel better. And then we start finding out that there are repercussions from doing some of these things or unforeseen consequences. And we start medicalizing natural emotions. So I think I want to live in a world where it's a very difficult question to wrestle with. And it's one that I I have to really beat myself up on it because if you told me tomorrow that my daughter had cancer mm-hmm. and she was going to need chemotherapy, you know, to cure it and those chemotherapy pills, medication was going to wash into the water supply, I would not care. That's my mm-hmm. daughter. That's, I'm going to do what I have to do to take care of her.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: So I'm, I'm going to be completely aware here that I can be a hypocrite on these issues and, That there are no easy solutions. Who wants to live in a world with death? Who wants to live in a world with torture? Who wants to live in a world where children are in pain? These are the fundamental questions that challenge God. (laughs) That Mm -hmm. we can say, how could there be a God and these things exist? We want to treat pain and we should treat pain. But we have to ask ourselves, when does the process of treating pain become a way of causing harm to the dignity of the human person when does it become a way of numbing ourselves i don't want to go back to you know relying on a country doctor 40 miles away Mm -hmm. but i think that in his book he poses some really interesting questions about taking some power back some control back about trying to really build health in a way where we take some responsibility for it i don't mean like the gop suggests um you know that's that there are mm-hmm. totally different things we're talking about but sort of redefining health where we do accept that there is going to be some pain and that we want to work towards a feeling of joy and health and not just life extension by any means possible Mm -hmm. and I and like I said I'm not going to ever have how do you tell somebody whose kid is really sick not to do something about it but we do have to talk about externalities and unintended consequences no matter how unhappy it makes us because it certainly makes me unhappy I, I wish we could cure everything and everyone could live forever
1: but. right well and i think you know one of the most helpful things at least for me and starting to you know kind of practice with stepping away from like law technique or you know whatever you want to call the sort of hyper rational world is that it's okay to call out some of these problems without having a a clear solution and that that instinct to only you know maximize and accept a a perfect and all-encompassing solution is not is not helpful um, so I'm not, I'm not saying that you have to be able to tell me that you'd be okay with like letting your family die if it, an overall, you know, net gain on the dignity of humanity and the world, anything like that. Not sure entirely where I was going with this. The, the, the point being is that I, I think it's fine. I would even say it's not hypocritical to say that, yes, you would protect your daughter. And yes, it's a problem the way that we use these medications and these medications are, you know, damaging to the environment. I don't, I don't like the idea that that makes you a hypocrite because that is always winds up being a, those accusations of hypocrisy just wind up being used as a defense of the status quo. Well,
3: that makes me feel a little better.
1: (laughs) Zeb, I'm I'm curious
4: um, because you work in a field where some of these questions are kind of more pressing on a, Day to day basis. I'm curious your thoughts on. I mean, you've talked a little bit on the podcast before about your involvement in movement towards organic farming and stuff like that. But I'd be interested to to hear kind of some instances you're aware of where these decisions kind of have to be made on a on a, a practical level. Because so I, I I work with with wine from the Republic of Georgia, and a lot of what's kind of fad organic farming in the West is just kind of standard winemaking procedure over there. And I remember being told about. A wine winemaking conference a couple of years back, where there was some discussion of pesticides or something of that sort, or you know, some kind of um, controlled fermentation process, and and a, a monk who who belonged to a, a a winemaking monastery stood up and started shouting about you know how. <laughs> Do you think if if God had intended – do you mean to say that God didn't give us everything we needed to make wine perfectly possible right in the ground? So there's there's sort of an immediate powerfully felt religious significance to <laughs> to the kind of traditional organic way they've been doing agriculture there for a very long time. I wonder if you have any kind of insight in, in the, the practical decision making.
2: Well, what struck strikes the chord with me here more than the connection to organic farming is – the Amish community that I work with. And I'm, I'm unclear, I mean, this is a fairly short speech here from from Illich, so I'm unclear about how exactly to interpret some of the things he says and how much it maybe is hyperbole to make a point or to kind of push in a direction and how much he's being literal and is means for us to take it at face value. But the, just the general caution to resist the impulse towards always progressing and all, always jumping onto the next opportunity for greater desire, fulfillment that technology presents us, mm-hmm. or that uh, modernist life and, and progressive social order presents, the Amish resist that just as a matter of course. Their stance is to be resistant, and not that they reject all progress or all technology, but they view it as something to be accepted only after a lot of discernment mm-hmm. that, is, is, that is actually necessary. If it's only nice but not necessary, they'll tend to reject it because they see that that leads, it's like a slippery slope, that leads to accepting more and more. So their stance is to be resistant. And if that's what Illich is, is advising here and what Elul advised, then I mean, I see how that works for the Amish and it certainly keeps them more rooted in their communities and I think also in the lands and in their bodies that was, I think, a really interesting subject that Illich raised kind of in passing here in this short speech is the way that we've been alienated from our bodies through modern technology. Mm. Like Tara said, the car has taken us away from relying on our feet for sprint <laughs> transportation, which I, I mean, it, it seems like a kind of silly and funny point to make, but there's some truth to it, you know, sure. especially when where he gets to the point of saying he mentions something about pilgrimage, that the, that the feet were what humans relied on for pilgrimage, going on their feet. And to turn it into that religious metaphor, not just getting from here to there, but treading the earth in search for holiness and for God, that has been t- somewhat taken away from us. So uh, I see it in that sense. I mean, I would like to think that organic farming Can be more amenable to this way of looking at life and this stance towards technology, but honestly, it can also be easily adapted to the progressive, scientific, and technological approach. Sure. Mm -hmm.
4: What was interesting to me was the was is the concept of risk, right? So if you're if you're doing winemaking in the traditional kind of uh, Georgian way, there's a lot of risk involved. Like if you're do if you're using spontaneous fermentation and you're just relying on the ground to provide climate control and stuff like that, you could easily lose. (laughs) You know, what would have been, and that was something I was interested in, is the the idea of risk involved in maintaining a posture of, you know, only allowing certain things in as, as acceptance as needed.
2: I wonder if there is a difference between mastery of craft and technique. What do you think, Tara? Yeah. Do you think that those...
3: Oh, absolutely. absolutely. I think there's, you know, it's it's the difference between the handmade artisan and the factory belt. I, I think you just look at two restaurants, look at a, look at Chili's with, you know, they have those little iPad screens you order from now and they want to minimize risk in their supply chain. So they have this very broad menu so that they can give you as many choices as possible. And then they have a very, they've minimized the possibility that anything can go wrong with any dish. And so everything is going to taste extremely standard. It's very predictable. I mean, if you've ever worked in a kitchen at a chain restaurant, you're just sort of amazed by how little organicness goes into it. And it's it's good, you know. Um, it helps people who can't really afford a nice meal out to eat out. I don't want to knock it entirely because um, for some people that's that's their treat. And I've, I've ha- relied on chilies before. Mm-hmm. But it, there's such a it's so far away from... A homemade meal or you know a small restaurant that changes their menus every week and the tragedy of that is what happens is organic food and handmade goods become a luxury item and that's terrible because we want so much because we want to have Thai food and we want to have plane trips and we want so much what ends up happening is we have this glut of things and they're all so many of them are low quality And they get high quality goods, you have to be rich. So the poor, instead of ending up with, you know, some furniture that might not be only a few pieces of furniture, but that might last 200 years. Now they have particle board from Ikea that was terrible to make for the environment and falls apart in six months. So, you know, I think a big part of technique is giving us this predictable amount of goods we can consume. And it's not, it's not entirely bad. But we lose something in the process, and the poor especially lose something in the process, which is they lose access to two things made of mastery. They lose access to organic foods, and that's, that's awful. That's something that I would love to figure out how we can change that.
1: It's funny. I really like that you actually mentioned both um, working in kitchens and organic food, because I used to work in kitchens, and I, I worked in a place um, that did actually – it was like an organic – Bistro kind of thing. And if you ever really, really want to hate people in general, working like in an organic kitchen is fantastic because you are, you are right. And the amount of waste is actually in organic kitchens. is through the roof because people's expectations of that consistency is still there. So you throw out so right. much produce oh. from the start and it's great. And this is just because I'm still mad about this like seven years later, but like, if it looks right, people will eat anything. So like, we used to have like these like mango slices, and it would just be the most unripe, disgusting mango, crunchy that you can imagine. Because you know, really good ripe mango is just a mushy, yeah, <laughs> disaster. But people hate seeing that on their plate because it's inconsistent. It looks weird. But you get these beautiful, perfect, slightly greenish yellow slices of <laughs> unripe mango, and that's all people ever wanted. And God, if the tomatoes were squishy, they would hate them. They'd want oh. them sent back. <laughs> Or oh god, organic organic kitchens are the worst place to be, because it, it's it's the exact proof of all of these things—not just the obsession with technique and this predictable, consistent thing, but how easily even good intentions of something like organic food can get subsumed into that, where the solution is actually just very quietly waste an obscene amount of food. To but, and guess, like it all comes out looking and the like best, this,
3: and the best food, you <laughs> know, your it's the, the stuff best, that's yeah. so ripe and so wonderful, but it doesn't look perfect, and that's what's that we want is we want that look, we want to consume that vision we have of the good life, the good and meal.
1: It, well, I, th- I think sort of the point I was to is it's interesting how much vision has become the mm-hmm. central, the central sort of sensual experience of eating. Yeah, Ta- taste and smell are absolutely secondary to good Instagram filter looking looking meal.
2: Absolutely, Tara. How is this perspective different from pure nostalgia? Because it might seem that the distinctions drawn are arbitrary or purely aesthetic and subjective.
3: Well, I love vaporwave, so <laughs> I like to be immune from medieval. <laughs> Uh, I'm somebody who loves neon lights and I love 80s aesthetics and you know I I love a lot of the things I criticize I think that's one thing I think is Catholicism has really been important to me is to not set my goal on the nostalgia I don't want to bring back this semi-ideal world that looks beautiful but um you know even if it, that it looks beautiful the point is being called to Christ and looking for Christ and looking for holiness. And that helps me sometimes with my urge to go buy a candle at Target because we're fallen creatures. What I'm really looking for here is for all of us to become more honest with ourselves about these problems. And I think if we even start to honestly say, hey, you know what? This Colton, it's a problem. Maybe we need to scale down. Maybe we don't need screens in our schools. Maybe the blackboard was good enough. Maybe we'll <laughs> maybe we'll keep the iPad. Maybe we'll keep our iPhone, but we don't need to turn everything into a screen. You know, a billboard's bad enough. Why does it need to be a screen? <laughs> mm-hmm. So it's not that I want you to, to pull back from all oh, technology because you, you can't do that. And I, I don't think that's desirable. But I want us to be honest about how we're using it because I think you can take a lot of stuff that we've produced over the past 50, 100 years and make beautiful things from it. You know, I I love paperback books and I love vinyl records and... I love all sorts of things that my grandparents didn't have in abundance and those things are, are beautiful and I think they're good. It's how we use them. It's how much we dedicate ourselves to just possessing them versus encountering them. You know, an ugly, an ugly development is still full of people and it can be made beautiful depending on how we treat it. So I'm not, I don't think there's a perfect world of cathedrals that I want to go back to. I think There's a lot of beautiful things we have here, and I just want us to be more honest about our interactions with them because I think that honesty can help heal some real pain that we've caused, and it will also make these things more beautiful. They'll, They'll end up being gateways and fingers pointing to God as opposed to just dead ends in themselves.
1: I can at least give you a little bit of good news in as far as paperbacks go. A bit of Library Insider info is (laughs) e-reader usage is tanking right now. It's it's looking like we've already hit past the peak of e-reader usage, and people of pretty much all ages are generally finding that they still prefer the sensation of physical books.
4: I don't know when the last time I saw someone using a Kindle was.
1: Yeah. It's really interesting. It's, that, that, that is a fad that is rapidly, that is rapidly passing.
3: You're not going to lose your job though, right?
1: <laughs> I mean, that's. No, like- because things like being able to look at a library catalog online, um, rather than a card catalog. And I absolutely do not care any about anyone who gets nostalgic from card catalogs. <laughs> They're, They're awful. Sh- they should be burned. My favorite card catalog is actually one that a former co-worker of mine took home. And she's because she's a big craft, crafty kind of person. And she turned it actually into a cabinet that holds her cat's litter box. <laughs> which is what I think should be done with all card catalogs. But no, I mean, I think it's a great example of technology finding its useful limit there. Because for searching collections, there's no way to compare the benefits of online catalogs to analog cataloging methods because you can just you can search across multiple organizations you can search by author title or subject for example whereas you know traditional card catalog unless you want to have a tremendously large amount of material and space wasted to take up multiple indexing systems you pretty much have to pick what's going to be your primary option. But on the other hand, electronic textbooks were a failure. No one likes them. No one uses them anymore. A lot of universities are phasing them out entirely. So it's, yeah, we're, we're we're figuring out where is enough with technology in the library, what is useful, what is beneficial. I previously worked in library jobs where I was doing more of the sort of glamour and glitzy technology in the library. And it is just... Tremendously unfulfilling, and the shame and guilt and sort of self. This this is a little bit exaggerated, but like I hated going into my job just because like it was so utterly pointless because I was just doing it to show off, you know, the latest of like look look what we can do. But you know now I do things like keep the online catalog up and running. I teach information literacy like information literacy classes because it turns out most people are still not great at identifying information on the internet. Funny thing. And so you know I think that you know it's I, I'm coming. Sort of that into my own terms of like how I can feel justified as, you know, being kind of the tech bro librarian. Because there's, you know, huge divides in the library world about technology right now. They also line up very strongly with age categories and gender and salary and all these. The point being is that it's where I think the library world and me as well are kind of finding a, a nice, or hopefully finding a nice balance of where technology can improve. The services the library offers, but also where we can say, "This is what we need from this technology, and we're going to move on now, and we're going to we're going to stop here. We're not going to put all the books online. We're not going to get rid of all the books. No one wants us to get rid of all the books, and we shouldn't just because we can." So I think that's promising for the future, at least at least in my field, that we are drawing some some limits on what we want technology to do for us
3: you know it's it's a a line we've all heard quoted so many times since the 90s but to quote jeff goldblum just because we can do something doesn't mean we should and that's a question that we all recognize the truth of but we just don't ask it enough there's just Mm -hmm. this sort of self-perpetuating spiral i was working in a catholic school for a little while up here and You know, I knew we we probably had radically different ideas of technology and consumerism, but just the sort of self-perpetuating, we want our kids to have good resumes so that they can get great careers, so that they can make lots of money, and to do that, we need to get the STEM, and we need to get the blackboards, and we need to get the iPads in every hand. And there was so little reflection on those things about what was really going to help children learn. So, as uh, to that nostalgia question, not really an answer, but continuing my answer is just. So, I, I guess my big thing would be really wanting us to ask these questions a lot more when it comes to the human body. Mm -hmm. I mean, working technology into our communities is already something that we're not paying enough attention to. The field that I'm incredibly concerned about with is artificial wombs and genetic modification of embryos, chimera experiments. Those things are so just kind of pushed under the rug. And that's where I draw my, my line firmly. That's where my nostalgia <laughs> really kicks in. It's, mm-hmm. it's for the human, the dignity of the human person is where I'm like, okay, this is where I'm laying it down. And I'm saying, we can't do this.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
3: If I, I love electronic card catalogs, I can't, I can't live without them. It's really what battles we want to fight. And to me, the human person, the dignity of the human person is one where I, there's very little, I want to compromise on And so that's concerns me enormously because we're, we're not talking about it. It's just sort of going on in research labs across the country, and we're just sort of taking it as it's given to us.
2: Yeah, could you talk about how you would apply Elix perspective to the that artificial womb thing? That's been a subject of controversy in Catholic Twitter, at least, because on the one hand, sure, it seems like it's making machines take the job of, like, the most important job of the human species, <laughs> But on the other hand, it could save the lives of of babies who are being carried by mothers who cannot physically bear them and also might have really big implications on abortion yeah. and at least under the current interpretation of um, abortion law and Roe v. Wade really push back the time limit on when a fetus is viable outside the womb. You know, if, if these fetuses could be transplanted into an artificial womb, then maybe we could end abortion.
3: It's a fascinating question, and I... I'm neither equipped or able to give a be-all, end-all answer to it. Artificial wombs is probably, of everything I just named, the one where I can see the most flexibility because of the issues you're talking about. But what I do, it's not even just about the role of motherhood disappearing. It's the unforeseen consequences of an act. And I'll bring up a little analogy or an example that I found years ago, and one of my favorite writers, he's um, a shepherd, who used to be a professor, um, James C. Scott. And he talked about growing pine trees in Prussia during the 19th century. And so he talks about how they, these technocratic planners sort of came in, and they had, um they'd done some theorizing about being able to speed up pine tree growth for wood and they sort of leveled this forest and they planted these saplings and the trees matured in 30 years. They were thrilled, they were so excited. They had this enormously high output of wood. It was predictable, they loved it. The second outgrowth of trees was not so fast and the third outgrowth was dreadfully slow. So it took about 100 years for them to figure out that The soil was being eroded, that the nutrients that had made that first growth so spectacular was not being replenished. And so when we're talking about things like artificial wombs, we're talking about embodied creation. There's so much interaction between a mother and her baby. I mean, she is, her hormones are going crazy. She's sick. The baby hears her voice. The baby hears her heartbeat. The baby's soothed by those things. We're finding out things that we, you know, babies can't talk. They can't tell us what's going on in the womb, but we're seeing long-term ramifications from things like skin-to-skin contact. So it's clear that we don't understand everything that's happening there. And while this could help save, you know, premature infants and, you know, could have huge ramifications on our abortion uh, debate. At the same time, we need to be very careful not knowing what a person would be like raised in an artificial womb. What happens to their what happens to their human bacteria system? What happens to their immune system? How do their organs look in 90 years? What do their children look? You know, when, when a woman's growing, uh, she has a daughter inside her, she's growing her granddaughter's future eggs. I mean, that might sound a little gross, you know, but there's all these things, her food, her sweat, her Everything about her is, is affecting this child. Now, I'm not one of those people who then wants to run with what to expect, the what to expect when you're expecting crowd and tell women to stay at home in bed. It's just that this is such a complicated process. And I'm so wary of us rushing in where angels fear to tread. There are mm-hmm. things you just can't know fully um maybe well maybe one day we will but when people talk about ai i just think how can you know we're, we're creatures that we think differently when our stomach hurts when we've eaten too <laughs> <laughs> we dream. if i get sweaty i'm grumpy yes. you know i think better when i'm really cold so what does an ai mean what what could a an android look like you know it's do they what is their interaction with their environment because we're embodied creatures If that Mm -hmm. makes sense. Yeah. So I I don't have an answer for you, Zeb. I I wish that I did. You know, on this particular issue on the artificial Mm -hmm. rooms, I'm saying slowly, slowly. Let's really think about this.
2: Yeah, I think that's something that a lot of people have a hard time accepting is the danger of the unknown and the time frame that it takes to understand the ramifications of technology. And that's one thing that I've really seen very clearly with organic agriculture and, I mean, of course, the fact that it rose up in opposition to conventional agriculture, what's called conventional, but is new and chemical and now um, genetically modified, is pesticides that were found to be completely safe because, like, you could literally eat them by the spoonful and not notice any side effects for weeks. But then only 30, 40 years later, we find that micro doses of them in the water supply exposed to the elements get transformed into chemicals that do have an effect. But these effects are only discovered over decades of exposure and lead to cancer or um, altered, altered fertility rates and things like that. And so the idea that we can figure out and predict whether something is safe based on five years of really intensive experimentation, and even if that experimentation is completely free from motivated biases, which is hard to believe because, you know, everything is motivated by the profit motive. But um, even under the best of circumstances, you can't do a 100-year experiment for a commercial product that doesn't work <laughs> in, the, in capitalist markets.
0: Yeah,
3: absolutely.
2: Well, changing the subject a little bit, one of the most provocative to me claims in Illich's speech here. Was that, and I, I guess he's taking this from Alul, that this technique world is a direct result, or outgrowth, or consequence of Christianity. And I, I mean, I didn't understand quite what he was getting at, or or how he would defend that. And I wondered if you could shed some light on that claim.
3: Well, I wish you hadn't asked me that. <laughs> 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 um, you
2: can edit it out if you don't want
3: to answer Oh, no, no, it's okay. It's, you know, I chose this essay because um, I, I thought the second part of it summed up a lot of what was dear to my heart. And because I think that his, the, the first part I was, you know, wanting to stay away from a bit more. I do think there is value in his critique of institutional Christianity, which is fleshed out more. In his works and in Jacques Allul's works. As I said, Allul, uh, Illick was a priest and he left the priesthood pretty severely disillusioned. Uh, still believed in Christ, but was very frustrated with the Catholic Church, as many people who lived in South America have been with the Catholic Church. Um, and Allul was i think a calvinist but really described himself as a christian anarchist and they're making the critique that i think we've all heard you know about christianity and catholicism being a tool for the powerful i draw a line saying that anything anything good and the better it is is going to be used as an excuse to do terrible things it increases the likelihood it will be used as an excuse. People want to be seen as virtuous, which I think is very interesting that very few people want to be seen as acting maliciously. And so when they go to colonize a new world, they're going to say that they're doing it in God's name. That sounds better than saying we're doing it because we want to get rich and we don't want to have to work again. And we just want to have lots of money and success. Um, and unfortunately, at many periods in time, as we all know, the the church and its various branches and sects have given way to that entirely. And that critique is what's made by agnostics and secular people. And there's an enormous amount of validity in it. But I don't think, for me, that doesn't disprove Christianity. Does it? it doesn't. You can no more disprove democracy than that people vote for war, you know, it's, people do bad things, and they'll often use a good thing to justify it. Um, Illick ended up leaving the church, and I've entered the church, <laughs> so we're going to have different perspectives on this. I take what I can from his critique, and I, I think that sometimes he isn't as charitable as he could be, but he was also living with the poor and the oppressed and i'm not so i try to remember that because perhaps i would be as angry as as he comes across in that
1: little bit it's funny it just it reminds me i remember um shortly after or i had joined the church a few years ago i was visiting my family and we met up with a old family friend that my parents have known since before i was born um and he's born and bred in rome and a very staunch atheist um and he was very shocked to find out I had converted to the Catholic church but he told me it was okay because I lived in America <laughs> if I lived in Rome he couldn't be friends with me anymore but since I'm not since I'm not in Italy it's okay for me to have become catholic um i think ba- basically what he was getting at was having seen firsthand the corruptions of the of the church you know living on their doorstep you know a lot of his problems uh with the church he he, he felt were far enough removed from the American church that that was not what I was signing on for, sort of what what he had seen. And I, I wonder sometimes about things like that where, you know, it's the the less practical power the church has, the easier it is to be forgiving of some of the sins of the past. And in this world that we dream of where, you know, our, you know, united world government under the auspices of the, of the Pope. <laughs> Some of us that. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Sorry. <laughs> but you know, but the the concerns of you know what has happened in the past when the church has actually had real political power, and how much easier it is to be forgiving and to like the church now, when at least in America, the church's actual authority is extremely limited.
3: Well, you know, it's it's funny that your friend said said that because if. You know, I had a friend, um, I made a friend from uh, Malawi, Africa, when I was working as a nanny to this family. And she, she, you know, she came from this much more patriarchal culture, um, not really religious, just kind of what we think as being sort of traditional, scary, (laughs) patriarchal culture. And she called herself a feminist. And I had, you know, I knew that, like, if She was using the word meaning it so differently than I was using the word that I had this sort of scorn and frustration for these women I saw as just wanting to get theirs and not caring about who was taking care of their children and completely disdainful of people who made different choices than them and pro-abortion. And her view was that it gave women a voice, that it honored women. And it just goes to show you just how how corruption of the best can really turn people, someone like me or your friend off of something. Mm -hmm. And then there's the danger that, you know, a convert like me to Catholicism and you, or like my friend to feminism, that we don't get so swept away in the movement that we end up excusing the abuses Mm -hmm. that other people have seen.
2: It's funny. I didn't pick up an anti-Christian or anti-church feeling from that first part of the essay. I was thinking it more as a kind of just a genealogy. And pe- right. there, I heard people talk about a similar theory like that socialism or Marxism and the, like, the most atheistic extreme forms of Marxist communism are really have their genealogical roots in Christianity and wouldn't exist without that Christian background because in some way they are a, a pared down set of Christian principles behind them or exemplify a subversion or perversion of of the Christian project. And I could see that with with technique sort of working in that way. I mean, I've seen the same thing about scientism and the Enlightenment being an essentially Christian thing that just happens to reject Mm -hmm. theism and, and the church in the process. But in Christianity, we have the evangelical call to go out and convert the nations, and an eschatological viewpoint that somehow everything's going to be made better and there is a paradise waiting at the end of time for us. And the um, the transhumanists who sort of exemplify the most extreme form of the faith of technique are so similar to us in, in those ways and sort of, if you phrase it very abstractly, you know, they, they see a paradise ahead for all of us. They want to convert everybody to their paradisic program, but of course they've just cut off some of the really essential parts that would keep us in check from, from, from virtue turning into vice.
3: I think the thing that I found negative in this speech is when he talks about um, subversion of the gospel gospel and its transformation into an ideology called Christianity. And I think he expounds upon that a little bit more in his in his books. But that's the sort of idea that Christianity died with Constantine. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think we're all, at least, I've, I've heard both sides of that argument. And sometimes someone makes it on one side, and I'm like, oh, that's it. They're absolutely right. But over the past few years, I've been much more sympathetic to the idea that it did not die. Uh, Mm -hmm. then, And so I, I'm a little bit wary of that kind of purism, which turns into this very easy thing that Christianity became this enormously powerful institution that was entirely corrupt. Absolutely. And it's, as a logical result, the enlightenment and imperialism and colonialism all come from that. I think he leans a little bit too far into that in some of his work, because of that righteous anger at what truly corrupt people did do in the church Ken what does um, what's be- becoming an eastern orthodox follower what's your what's your take on on Illich um, I, I don't really hear them talk too much about transhumanism
4: I wish we did more um, I, so I stumbled on have you ever listened to the Christian transhumanist podcast no I've not oh, oh, oh no oh, is
3: that a real thing
4: oh yeah it's not very interesting, but they had an episode on um, because I think a lot of kind of uh, folks who sort of belong obliquely to the Protestant tradition, but aren't necessarily you know like confessional Lutherans or or reform folks or whatever, have, have an interest in in Orthodox Christianity because I guess it doesn't smack of fundamentalism to them, um, so that's why it's appealing. Um, but anyway, they did a they did an episode on on theosis because that's kind of the the buzz. The buzzword for for these folks uh and it was a really bizarre like take on on like f- excitedly finding a christian tradition that could sort of back up their interest in transhumanism because enough. <laughs> well yeah it was real bizarre uh, and i hated it and um it made me uh, feel all kinds of bad feelings <laughs> But yeah, I think that it's, uh, and part of the thing is that we don't have a ton of like we don't have a ton of prophetic witness in in the U.S. I don't think, which is partly just a numbers issue and partly a, a kind of maybe a deeper problem that we don't. Uh, certainly, I think the church in Russia is a little more outright about, or or in, yeah, is, is kind of more vocal about technological and cultural issues. I would like to see a whole lot more interest from Christians at large in, in, in things like transhumanism. And I think especially because Orthodox Christians have historically been interested in questions of nature, not natural law specifically, Although that does have a place in our tradition, but we have, we do have interest in, in questions of feces and stuff like that. I, I, I wish it was something we had more engagement with because I think that there's a really, we could probably offer a pretty powerful critique. It uh, was, our tradition.
3: you know, years ago I was friends with a, a transhumanist. Um, and I've known a few also who work for Google when I was living out in California. But my, my friend was a very educated guy, very passionate atheist. He's a comedian who, I don't think he's been on Chapo Trap House, but he's on, you know, like the big, one of those really wild ones. And when he started talking about this stuff, it was a huge move for me in terms of, oh, my gosh, I have yeah, not self Christ. <laughs> like, why isn't the Catholic Church talking about this? Yeah. And you go out to, you know, I was out in California and I have. Like I said, I I know a lot of people who they don't the Catholic critique doesn't even pass on their their screen their radar. It's as if we're as if we're the Amish, you know. Sorry, Zeb, but it's we're as <laughs> relevant to them as the Amish. And this is what's going to happen, and it's so exciting. And I think people are going to be bowled over when Zuckerberg eventually <laughs> thought, what are they going what are they doing we're not making this critique now i mean we yeah. all know that the technology is coming that it's here that it's speeding up and we're not talking about it we're just shoving these bioethical questions you know under the rug and people like me or you know if pope francis says the thing it's sounds alarmist and everybody just kind of says what's that about
4: and <laughs>
3: right you're like guys we Zuckerberg wants to run for office. You know, Facebook wants to put stuff in our bodies. Google, like they're not, they're not in any way joking about it. They are spending billions of dollars doing these things. They want to reshape our reality and we're just sleeping, (laughs) sleeping right through it. (laughs) And it's something I wish Rod Dreyer would talk about more on his website is, you know, you're, you're kind of fighting yesterday's battles, but. And then, and, you know, f- fight the battles you want to fight. But um, this, to me, is something that I think everybody has a stake in. Everybody is going to be called to have an opinion. <laughs> and here's something that can unite people who maybe disagree on a lot of things.
2: Thank you for coming on, Tara, and for sharing this interesting article with us. Uh- Great. Well, th- thank you guys so much for having me
1: on. I'm thank just- you so much for coming. This was, this was fantastic. Thank you, Tara. It-
3: It was a privilege,
0: so. Have a good night. All right. Bye-bye. You're not here. Bye-bye. Don't sweat the technique. Don't sweat the technique. Let's trace the head. Check the file, let's see who fits the dial, check the style I flip the script so it can't get filed, at least not now, it'll take a while I change the pace to complete the beat, I drop the bass to see, get weak For every word they trace is a scar they keep, cause when I speak, they freak the sweat the technique I made my debut in 86 with a melody and a president's mix. And I would stay on target and refuse to miss. And I still make hits and beats. Parties, clubs, and cars and jeeps. My underground sound, by face the streets. MCs want to beef and I play for keeps. When they sweat the technique. Don't sweat the technique. wanna know how many times have I ripped the up But researchers never found all the pieces yet Scientists try to solve the context Philosophers are wondering what's next Pieces took the last to observe them. They couldn't absorb them. they didn't disturb them My ideas are only for the audience ears My opponents it might take years Pence who's a pen's sword Let us put together from a key. To code. The most so a sculpture born with structure. Because of my culture, I'm styled out a perfect destructor. A style that a beat full of technology, complete sights and new heights. After I get deep, you don't have to speak, just see and peep the technique. Don't, don't sweat the technique. In the squeak, cause talk cheap, then I get deep in the beat, thinkin' complete. Bold with the seats, never weak, get obsolete. They never grow old techniques, become antiques, better than something brand new, cause it's a and In the wild style, I have much more value. Classical, too intelligent to be radical. Masterful, never irrelevant, mathematical. Pierce, i the soothing, souvenirs, for all the years. And forth, all the sort, thoughts and ideas. It's cool when you freak to the beat. But do sweat the technique. Don't sweat the technique, don't sweat the technique.